Where's summer gone? <laughs> we uh, long for summer again, but the fall season is exciting too. There's going to be some retreats next weekend for students, and then two weeks from now, there's a, a men's retreat, and I would just encourage the men to sign up for this retreat. It'll be at Keats Island, September 27 to 29, a great time to make friends with other men and also to just share uh, you know, your journey together in Jesus. Uh, the guest speaker is Phil Collins, not the drummer from Genesis or the vocalist, no, uh, Phil Collins, he's a pastor from Kelowna, and uh, he's a, a great brother, great friend, and you'll enjoy hearing not only his personal stories, but also him expounding the word for, uh, for you. So, uh, today's the last day to register for that retreat. We continue in our sermon series, uh, E-Transfer, and today's sermon title is uh, Exalt Worship Impact. And to just uh, start off the message, I've invited a missionary, Karen Sanchez, to share his story with us. Karen and her husband, Ricky, have been missionaries in uh, Thailand for a little over 20 years. Um, Together with their team, they've planted churches among Thai and Cambodians in uh, Chonburi province. And they founded an orphanage for uh, children with HIV-AIDS. And while doing all of that, they've uh, raised four daughters, which is quite amazing. So bless you, Karen. want to hear your story. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here with you today. I want to share a, a story about one of the hardest times in my missionary career and how God met me. Uh, so I got into my car. I was sobbing. I had just left my oldest daughter at a university in Kansas, and I was on my way back to Thailand. And as I drove down that long country road, uh, I just cried, and I cried, and I cried. And, uh, and then I began to get a bit angry with God, and I just said, this is too hard, it's too far, I can't do it. And uh, in the midst of that, I cried out to God, and I said, you're going to have to give me something new in Thailand, otherwise I'm not going to make it. This is just so um, hard on my mother's heart. And uh, so I went back to Thailand and uh, got back into ministry, and our team had been doing kids' clubs with migrant Cambodian kids that were in our city uh, working on construction sites for years, for about five years, and we had yet to see God do a breakthrough and actually birth a church out of that. So we began praying for a way to actually reach the adults. At that time, I heard that a Cambodian evangelist was coming through our city. So we uh, got this great idea to do a huge Christmas party. And so we went out to about 10 different work sites with letters and invited all the workers. And every one of the foremen said no. They were not going to release the workers. And uh, that was it. And so our team got back together and we began to pray even harder. And we said, we really believe like this is... Uh, the ideas from God. So God, we need your breakthrough. And uh, right before that, uh, we found out that we had 200 Samaritan purse shoe boxes that had come in. So we thought, okay, we can leverage that. And uh, so in faith, we hired a cook to make food for 150 people. We hired 10 trucks and we went back to the work sites and uh, asked again. And uh, to our great shock, all of the foremen said, okay, yeah, they can go. And so that night, the trucks began rolling in with dozens and dozens of uh, Cambodian workers that were just so excited to be together. And uh, that night after we worshiped, the evangelist got up and he shared about a 15-minute presentation of the gospel. And uh, then he very quietly just said, who would like to give their lives to Christ? And uh, in front of our very eyes, the people just started standing up all over the church. And... Uh, 
he led them in a beautiful prayer of accepting Christ. And then after that, he said, now I know many of you have on a magic belt under your clothes and you have amulets on to ward off evil spirits. So if you want to be free today from uh, living in this fear of evil spirits, come forward. We have this big butcher knife right here and we're going to cut those things off for you today. And again, dozens of people just walked to the front uh, to be free from this fear. And uh, as, I, as I looked at my husband, he said, Karen, you're not going to believe this, but 77 people just gave their hearts to Christ. And uh, I, I was overwhelmed, started crying, and I went outside just to have a moment under the stars, and I just praised God for what he was doing in our midst. And in that moment, I heard the Lord say to me, I saw you on that country road. And I saw that your heart was broken, and I I heard your cry for something new. And so tonight, I'm birthing uh, a Cambodian church in your midst, and I um, I know that you needed a new thing, and so um, I'm I'm answering your prayers from that night on the country road. Thanks. Thank you, Karen, for sharing that story. If you want to learn more about Karen, what God's doing in Thailand, uh, just go to our latest uh, Willingdon on Mission podcast. So let me pray for you, Karen. Father, I do thank you for uh, your work of grace in Karen's life, in Ricky's life, their family. Thank you for what you're doing through their team in Chonburi province. We thank you for uh, new Thai and, uh, and Cambodian believers. And we pray that they would be strengthened by you in their journey, that they would mature in you and they would understand, come to an understanding of your calling on their lives. And uh, Father, I pray for Karen and Ricky as they leave McKenna here behind at UBC. Just pray that they would uh, be... Um, by your spirit, filled with peace, and know that you are with their daughter here and their daughters in other parts of North America, that they can trust you to care for them in this season. So God, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus' name, and we pray your continued blessing on Ricky and Karen and their family. Amen. God bless you, Karen. So that story that Karen told is a story of um, asking, of waiting, of praying, of waiting for God to move, of exercising faith. What's it like for you when you are waiting for something? Uh, when my daughters were still at home, we had uh, a small dog, a, a toy schnauzer uh, named Oreo. And often I would go to the sidewalk with uh, Oreo, and I would say, wait, and Oreo would stop at the sidewalk, look up at me, and then start bouncing, eyes fixed on me. I'd say, wait, and I'd go, one, two, three, go, and Oreo would run across the street into the park as if she had gone to heaven. (laughs) But as soon as I said, wait, she was filled with expectancy because she knew what was coming. What's it like for you when you're waiting? You know, I remember being a student and, uh, you know, in spring the days would be a bit longer, the sun would shine, and, you know, summer vacation was on the horizon and you had a hard time studying, filled with expectation. As we book, open the book of Acts today, we're going to be in Acts 1, 2, a few other chapters, but as we open the book of Acts, the disciples are expectant, they're waiting. Why? 
Well, they're waiting because Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, he instructed them that they should wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these are Jesus' last words, his commission for his disciples, a commission that is uh, relevant to us as well. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the disciples, they receive that commission. Jesus ascends to the Father, and the disciples return to Jerusalem to wait. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. It's page 909 if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you. Acts 1.13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." And so there the disciples are gathered, probably a group of about 120, according to verse 15. And they're with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Ten days after Jesus' ascension, something extraordinary happens in the lives of these disciples. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, same page. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested, literally sat on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So where have we seen a mighty rushing wind and fire before in the scriptures? Well, in the book of Exodus, on the shores of the Red Sea. Pentecost is this event of Exodus proportions. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind from heaven and tongues of fire rest on the disciples. The disciples are receiving the promise of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit. God dwelling not only among his people, but in his people. We read on chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? What's God doing here? Well, on this Pentecost day, there were people in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire and beyond. If you read through the place names, the people group names in the following verses, there are people from what is today Iran, Iraq, Crete, Rome, North Africa, Arabia, Turkey. This multitude came together drawn by the sound of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples, being filled. How are these uneducated Galileans speaking in our own languages? How is that happening? They're bewildered. They're amazed. What does this mean, they ask? Well, what does it mean? 
Pentecost is a reversal of something that happened way back in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the people are building a tower to themselves. They're dethroning God and claiming the earth for their own. They're acting in arrogance. It's an expression of their independence of God. And God confuses their languages and scatters the people. Pentecost is a reversal of that day. Pentecost is about men and women surrendering themselves to God, waiting in God's presence, saying to God, here we are, fill us with your spirit. It's a reversal of Babel. The Father is forming a new people, people from all over the earth, coming together to speak one language, the language of the spirit. It's a multinational, multicultural, multilingual family created by God. God is birthing his church here in Acts 2. It's a church for all people. Now, a question that sometimes comes up is, is the Holy Spirit for all? The experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit, is that for everyone that believes in Jesus? Or is it for an elite few? Peter, in his message to the crowd there in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, he answers that very question. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Jesus, when he teaches his disciples in Luke chapter 11, this is what he says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. It's a promise. And in verse 13, he says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more? So the Father delights in answering this prayer. I was uh, with my biological father, my earthly father, uh, the day before yesterday. And he's almost 92. But one thing about my father is that he loves to bless me and my brothers. I have no doubts around my father's desire to give good gifts to me and my brothers and our families. Now, if my father, my earthly father, who is not perfect, has that kind of desire, how much more does the heavenly father desire good for you? And the best thing that he can do is save you through his son, Jesus Christ, and fill you with his very own spirit the Holy Spirit. So know that if we worship and pray, we will be filled with the Holy Spirit by the Father. We will be. It's not the experience for a few elite disciples that have really matured in their faith. It's not the experience of a particular denomination. It is for all followers of Jesus. Now, sometimes we don't ask for the filling of the Spirit because we haven't been discipled in this direction, or sometimes we're just afraid. I remember when I started to follow Jesus, I was actually afraid of praying for the filling of this Holy Spirit. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to become weird, crazy? It's an irrational fear, but sometimes we actually 
have that fear within us. The scriptures encourage us to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, we ask for the Holy Spirit because we actually cannot exercise faith in Jesus without the Spirit of God. We pray for the filling of the Spirit because we can't actually know Jesus personally without the Spirit of God. We pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit because we cannot carry on the ministry of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. We pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit because we cannot pray according to the Father's will without the Holy Spirit. We pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit because we cannot love the way God would have us love Him and love one another. We cannot live the Christian life which Jesus has called us to without the Holy Spirit. So we must ask, and the Holy Spirit is given in the context of worship and prayer and asking. So, in your personal journey with Jesus, your tent of meeting, how expectant are you that God is going to move in your life as you surrender yourself to him? There when you're alone with him. When we come together as a church family and we worship, we sing, we pray, we ask, how expectant are we that God is going to move among us, that God is actually going to speak to you and me? I was talking to one of our pastors this week, and he said that three times in his life, in worship, God redirected him. Here in Acts chapter 2, You know, the disciples, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been in an enclosed space, a private space. Now they leave that enclosed space. They go out into the public space, and they start to witness boldly to Jesus. They speak of the mighty works of God through Jesus. A few days later, this is now Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple. They're going there to worship. There's a lame beggar on the steps. He's over 40 years of age, the scriptures say, lame from birth. Through the ministry of Peter and John, through the work of the Holy Spirit in and through them, this man is healed. He's restored. It's a miracle. People come to faith. The religious leaders see what's happening. They feel threatened by the new movement, so they arrest Peter and John. Peter and John spend the night in prison. The leaders are afraid of this new movement, afraid of the crowds, and so instead of keeping them in prison, they just warn them. And this is what they say to them in Acts 4, verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they are to stay quiet. How does the young church respond? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. This is page 912, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So as they begin to pray, they remember who God is. They worship him. They exalt his name. God, you're sovereign over all things. You're Lord over all things. You're the creator of all things. Everything belongs to you. And then they remember a psalm as they're praying, Psalm 2, which is a psalm that talks about how foolish it is to act against the anointed of the Lord. Let's keep reading. So, verse 25, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, Father, just a few days ago, Jews and Gentiles plotted against your servant Jesus. That was foolish because exactly what you had planned, what you had predestined to take place, took place. So here we are, your servants threatened. How will they pray? Look at this, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they're threatened. Life is a bit uncertain for them, but they pray for even more boldness to witness to Jesus. And it's interesting, they don't ask God to perform signs. They just assume that God will be present to heal and to perform signs and wonders as they faithfully proclaim the gospel. As they pray, the place is shaken. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue the ministry of Jesus. In Acts, over and over again, as God's people worship, as they pray, you can read through the book of Acts, and when they are worshiping and praying, there is the manifest presence of God, and people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might ask, weren't they already filled with the Spirit back there in Acts chapter 2? Why are these disciples filled again? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul here in Ephesians, he speaks of an ongoing daily filling of the Holy Spirit. Each day as we wake up, we surrender our lives to Jesus. Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Fill me with your Spirit. I cannot live this day without you. That is to be our daily practice. And that feeling will lead to a life of worship and prayer. Here in Acts chapter 4, the mark of the church is that they boldly witness to Jesus. They're united across social, ethnic lines, gender lines. They're one. They're generous with one another. They're generous to those outside of the church family. The great grace of God is upon them, the scriptures say. So know that if we worship and pray, the Spirit will empower us for bold witness to Jesus. The Spirit will empower us for bold witness to Jesus. Have you ever experienced such a church? Do you long for such a church? In um, 2012, uh, Judy and I were invited to some revival meetings in Upper Egypt on the Nile River in a town called 
Malawi. It was an uncertain time because churches in Egypt were being attacked. Some had been burned. Some had been restored, uh, uh, destroyed. Evangelical Christians were nervous. We were invited to participate in these revival meetings for four days. Small church had begun as seven members in 2001. Now in 2012, numbered over a thousand. We were told that prior to our coming that they had been praying and fasting for 40 days. The first thing that we noted in this church was their tremendous love for one another and their love for us. Their generosity toward one another and their amazing hospitality. The church met in a five-story building. It had been slightly renovated for church use. Uh, The services started at 7 p.m. each night. By 6 p.m., the church was already buzzing. I remember the first night of the revival meetings, I asked the pastor, we were staying on the top floor, I said, what's going on? It's 6 o'clock. He said, oh, people are coming because they want to secure a seat in the main auditorium. Expectant. So as I went down for the service at 7 o'clock, I was walking through people on the stairs, in the aisles. The place was packed. The upper levels were filling. Worship began, and the place just erupted. People hanging on every word that they were singing. I've never been in such a powerful worship experience. They worshiped God for an hour. And then after that time of worship, I was invited up to speak. I had to maneuver my way through the people to get to the platform. There were people sitting around me on the stage. What a wonderful moment to be invited. What a privilege to be in that moment where there's a hunger for the word of God to be able to proclaim his word. And even before I finished, people started to stand up in response. There were people rededicating their lives to Jesus, not because of my great sermon, but because God was present. So people rededicated their lives. Others came to faith. There were people from different denominations present. Even Muslims had come for prayer. I remember two men coming up after the service. They said, we're not sure why we're here, but we know we need to repent. (laughs) That's what happens when God is at work, when God is present in the room, when the great grace of God is upon his people. Do you and I hunger for a church like that? Do do we hunger for that? Do we want to be a part of that? It begins with you and I surrendering our lives completely to Jesus, worshiping God for who he is, praying believing that if we ask the Lord will fill us with his spirit that what he did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and other parts of the Roman Empire he can do and wants to do today in greater Vancouver you know in Acts chapter 8 the church in Jerusalem is being persecuted and so uh, some disciples go up to the city of Antioch which is in uh, modern day Syria and As they go up, they share their faith with those whom they encounter. And both Jews and Gentiles come to faith. Many come to faith. And so the church in Jerusalem, when they find out about that, they send Barnabas up to Antioch to instruct them in the way of Jesus. More people come to faith. So Barnabas goes after Saul, finds Saul and brings him to Antioch. And for a year, they teach the young church together. 
What do we need to know about Antioch? Well, Antioch was a city of about half a million. It was cosmopolitan. It was multicultural. It was pluralistic. In that city, according to history, there were Greeks and Romans and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Egyptians and Indians. So this wonderful marriage of European and Asian life, not so unlike Greater Vancouver. What happens in this church? Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Turn there with me. Acts 13, verse 1, page 921. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Fascinating. And so Barnabas is a Hellenist Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black in Latin. So probably a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene, a city, old city in Libya. Manning, a member of the court of, court of Herod the Tetrarch, so a man of high social standing. And Saul, a Hellenist Jew from south-central Turkey. There's your diverse leadership team. Now, one of the interesting things about Antioch, yes, it was multi-ethnic, it was multicultural, but there were dividing walls separating ethnic groups. Ethnic groups lived in their own sections, and there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between different ethnic groups. But here in the church, they come together. God creates something new. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. They're one. Here we are at Willingdon, worshiping in some 11, 12 different languages every weekend. Uh, Someone told me that there are people in our congregation from over 65 different countries. What has God done here? Do we ponder this? What has God crafted in his providence? And what would he say to us? How does God speak to the church in Antioch? Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They The word they most likely refers to the entire congregation in Antioch. What are they doing when they receive a word from God? Well, they're worshiping. They're praying. They're fasting. What does it mean to worship? Well, most fundamentally, basically, it just means to bow down before God, to recognize God for who he is, exalt his name, and recognize who we are in light of who he is. You're not God. I'm not God. God is God. (laughs) And then as you do that, you surrender to God your past, your present, your future. You surrender every area of your life, your personal life, your social life, your work, your studies. You surrender it all. God, here I am. It all belongs to you. You're the sovereign Lord. You're the creator of all things. What is it that you would say to me today, Lord? Worship. What does it mean to fast? Well, when we fast, very simply, we reduce the intake of food, (laughs) either completely or partially. And why would we do that? Well, we do that because we want to hear God's word to us. So we remove distractions. We want to align our hearts with his. Trust me. If you spend time in worship and prayer and fasting, you will hear God speaking to you. 
There is no doubt around that. If you surrender yourself to God and say, God, here I am, your servant. Speak to me. I want to understand what your will is for my life. God will speak. What does the Lord say to the leaders in Antioch? Set apart. Appoint for me. Saul and Barnabas, two of my servants. I've called them. So God has already spoken to them about what he has for them. Where did Saul first encounter Jesus and receive a calling from him? Well, on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 26, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Where has Paul been since his conversion, since he heard that word from Jesus? Well, the scriptures tell us that he went to Arabia and Damascus for three years, being taught by the Lord, meditating on the scriptures. Then for 11 years, he was in Syria and Cilicia. He was growing in his faith. He was serving. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was being equipped. He was being prepared. Then after 11 years, Barnabas goes and gets Saul, brings him back to Antioch. For a year, they teach the young church the ways of Jesus, a young, vibrant, growing church. And now, Acts chapter 13, in this time of worship and prayer, The leaders hear the word of the Lord over Saul and Barnabas, and it's a confirmation of the calling that they already received. This calling is being rekindled. It's God's timing. And the church is invited to confirm the calling. I think that's instructive for us. When you and I receive a calling from God to do something, we hear the word of the Lord over our lives, there will be a time of preparation to walk into that calling. And there will be opportunity for God's people to confirm that calling on our lives. But know this, that if we worship and pray and ask, the Holy Spirit will lead us as a church to set apart men and women to carry on Jesus' ministry. That will happen. And how how will God speak to us? Well, just as he spoke to his people in the time of the early church. God will speak to us as we worship and fast and pray. God will speak to us as we study his word, meditate on it. God will speak to us through prophetic words that need to be discerned by God's people in light of scripture. But God continues to speak. God will speak through dreams and visions. God will speak through providential circumstances. He will speak through gathered leadership. God is speaking The problem, as we read Scripture, is not around whether God wants to speak or not. That is never the issue. Unless people are in complete rebellion and God decides to remain silent. But if people are in a posture of surrender, in Scripture, God speaks. The problem is with us. (laughs) Quite often, we don't actually want to hear what God has to say. Because it may change our direction in life. 
But we should never be afraid of the will of God because the will of God is actually acceptable. It is perfect. There is nothing better for you or I. Last weekend, I told you the story of a young people from one of our churches in Sao Paulo. They were called to serve among the Wall of people in Senegal. Well, how did that happen? Well, the husband, as a young boy growing up in northeastern Brazil, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw himself proclaiming the gospel to African people. He grew up. As he matured, this sense of calling, it grew within him. So he came to Sao Paulo, enrolled in seminary, did a degree, a degree in biblical studies, and another in mission. While he was studying at the seminary, he, was, he and his wife, they served as apprentices in this church plant. And we were able to see God's gifting in their lives. Confirm that. Affirm it. After that time in the church plant, they went to Bolivia for two years, testing their cross-cultural calling, studying nutrition, studying nursing. And all the while, God was preparing us as a church to pray for them, to support them, to send them. So there's a calling, there's a time of preparation, and then there's the opportunity to confirm that calling. You know... If we do hear God's voice over our lives, we'll have to exercise faith individually and as a church. Just think, Acts chapter 13, that church in Antioch is a young church. New believers. Saul and Barnabas have been teaching them for a year. (laughs) Not 20 years, a year. So a bunch of new believers. They have five leaders. Two will be sent out. What's it going to be like for the three that remain? What's the future of this young church? They'll have to exercise faith. But what a wonderful place to be, to be in a place of dependence on God where we recognize that if we're going to move forward, then God must manifest his presence and work among us. What a great place to be. So know that if we worship and pray, God will move. God will move. He will move. I'll close with this. We're called to be a house of prayer for all nations. That means that our desire is to be a home for all peoples. That means that we're committed to praying for all nations. That means that our desire is to send people to all nations. We're called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, he quoted Isaiah 56. Let me read Isaiah 56 for you. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted On my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Can you think of a better fulfillment of that word spoken through the prophet Isaiah than Pentecost? Can you think of a better fulfillment of that word than what was happening in the church of Antioch? 
Could it be that God would have us as a church family be a fulfillment of that word, a house of prayer for all peoples, where all are welcome, and we not only intercede for one another here, but we pray for the peoples of the earth that have not heard the message of Jesus, and we send our own to those people that they might hear the gospel. Willingdon exists to know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on his ministry. That's God's calling on our lives. That's why we exist. The only way that we can come to know Jesus personally and carry on his ministry in our day, wherever we are, is under the empowerment, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we worship you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus. You're sovereign over all things, and you are Lord over this moment in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, your people. Let's just take a moment of silence, and I would encourage you just to ask the Lord this question. Lord, what would you have me do? What are you calling me to do this day? So, Lord, as we just present ourselves to you, people called by your grace to follow you. We hear the fans and we recognize that the air is moving. We pray, Lord, for the move of your Holy Spirit among us. We ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask for your fullness that we might proclaim your word boldly. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would accompany our proclamation of your word, of your gospel, of your message with signs and wonders, with healings, for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom here in greater Vancouver and around the world. In Jesus' name, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.